All right, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to take a little break from our study of 2 Peter um, until the new year so that we can observe Advent. The word Advent means literally arrival or an appearing or a coming into place. The season of Advent spans the four Sundays before Christmas every year. Around here, we typically talk about Advent as the anticipation of our celebration of the Incarnation. There are two big features of Advent, though, that we need to be aware of, especially this year. First, Advent is about identifying with the posture of expectation that marked God's people for thousands of years before the coming of the Messiah. In other words, those Old Testament saints were anticipating the long-awaited, the promised Savior. And that Advent helps us identify with them in their sense of anticipation. Noel Piper, who is John Piper's wife, wrote a really helpful book called Treasuring God in Our Traditions. And in that book, she says this about Advent. She says, for four weeks, it's as if we we're reenacting, remembering the thousands of years God's people were anticipating and longing for the coming of God's salvation, namely for Jesus. Then at Christmas, we celebrate his incarnation, right? We celebrate his coming. But Advent is also about joining those saints of old in the posture of anticipation and expectation as we, as we believers in Jesus, await the promised return of the Messiah. We're going to join them in this sense of expectation in our waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. One scholar says the Advent celebration is both a commemoration of Christ's first coming and an anticipation of his second coming. As Israel longed for their Messiah to come, so Christians long for their Savior to come again, right? And so we want to be thinking about those two layers of Advent this year as we celebrate. Well, this year, our Advent sermon series is going to help us do both of those things as we look at four stories from Genesis that whisper the name of Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible is helpful in showing us that indeed every story whispers his name. And we really believe that around here at First Baptist Church. In fact, our statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message, says it this way. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That's part of what we believe about the scriptures, is that all scripture is a testimony to Jesus. And he is the focus of divine revelation. And so it makes sense that we would look at Genesis and see Jesus. That we would see his name whispered over and over And what we're going to see is that the things whispered in these stories in Genesis are not just accomplished at his first coming, but are ultimately fulfilled in his near return. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is going to be our main verse today. But before we get to that main verse, we need to start at the very beginning. Today from Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we're going to see three things. Number one, the very good creation. Number two, the very bad corruption. And number three, the very sure promise, right? The very good creation, the very bad corruption, and then the very sure promise in chapter 3, verse 15. Before we dive into the text, let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, help us to hear the whispered name of Jesus in every story we read in your word. Help us to live these next four weeks with the same kind of anticipation, the same kind of expectation as our faithful brothers and sisters did in the Old Testament days longing for and looking for the promised deliverer. 
and help us to celebrate with joy inexpressible and full of glory as we gather in this room on December 25th and worship the Christ who has come, the child who was born. Help us also to live all of our days with a sense of anticipation and expectation that our risen Lord, who died for our sins and conquered the grave, who sits now at your right hand, will come again. And he will crush his enemies under his feet and fully and finally and forever deliver his people whom he purchased with his own blood. We pray all this in his name, the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. All right, so let's look first at the very good creation. You know the very first verse of the Bible, right? You probably have this memorized. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that beginning started a six-day process in which God created everything that exists. In fact, look at this picture and remember with me what happened on the various days of creation. On day one, he created light and darkness. On day two, he created the sky. On day three, he created the land and plants and trees. On day four, the sun and moon and stars. On day five, birds and fish. On day six, all kinds of animals that creep along the earth. And he created all of these things in just six days out of nothing. In fact, the Latin phrase for that that you'll read in theology books is ex nihilo. Out of nothing he created these things. Not as if he just put together raw materials, but you know that he spoke. He spoke and things came into being. Only God can do that. And as he created all these things, he declared over and over again, it's good. In fact, at the end of each day, the first five days, he says, it was good. It was good, and there was evening and morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. In fact, in Sally Lloyd-Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible, the first chapter, when she talks through creation, I love the way she expresses it. She said, God looked at what he, he had made, and he said, you're good. You're good. I love the way she repeats that. He created all these things out of nothing. He said that it was good, but then on the sixth day, after he created the animals, he also created the man. Look at this in Genesis chapter 1. Starting in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And, over, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Look at verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Three important things I want you to see from God's special creation of man in his own image. Number one, he created man in his own image. And I'm using here man as a general term, mankind, Adam and Eve. He created them in his own image. That's super important. None of the other bits of creation were in his image, but man he created in his own image. Number two. He gave the man authority over the rest of creation, right? From the very beginning, we see that. I'm going to put you in charge of all the rest of this. In fact, he gives him more specific instructions later on about giving these things names and ruling over them. 
God created man in his own image. He gave him authority to rule over the rest of creation. And thirdly, he said, this is very good. And that stands out as you read Genesis chapter 1. As you're walking through the days of creation, at the end of day 1, it's good. At the end of day 2, it's good. At the end of day 3, it's good. At the end of day 6, though, he says, is very good. It is very good. And it was very good. Adam and Eve lived together in perfect harmony with one another at the beginning. They lived in perfect harmony with the rest of creation at the beginning. In fact, they lived in perfect harmony with God himself at the beginning. They walked with him in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. It was all as it should be. It was a very good creation. That's the first thing today. But that's not how the story ends, right? I wish it did. I wish it went on like this. But there is a very bad corruption. A very bad corruption. God gave Adam and Eve everything they needed. In fact, he gave them everything they could ever want. They had it made in the garden. And as far as we can tell, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he only gave them one rule. One rule to follow. Look at it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Seems pretty simple, right? All these beautiful trees, all these wonderful trees that bear fruit and seeds, all these trees you can eat from, you have everything that you need. But from that one tree, that one tree you must not eat. In fact, if you eat from it, you will die. Seems pretty simple to keep one rule, right? But we know how the story goes. In Genesis chapter 3, we read this, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. You catch that? That snake, the enemy, the tempter, the liar, the devil did what he always does tempted them to doubt God's word. He still does that today, you know. He tempted them to doubt God's word. Notice he says, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He tempted them to question God's faithfulness. He still does that today. He tempted them to question God's faithfulness. He said, you will not surely die. God said you will die, but you will not surely die. He questions God's faithfulness. And thirdly, he tempted them to wonder if God might be holding something back from them. And he still does that today. He still whispers those kind of things to you and me today. God's holding something back from you. He's not really good to you. He said to them, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. That snake was up to the old tricks, the same old tricks that he uses on us today 
and Adam and Eve fell for those tricks. And they did the one thing that God told them not to do. They ate from that tree, and immediately everything changed. And it changed for the worse. They sinned, and nothing would be the same after that. Nothing would be the same for them, and nothing would be the same for us. The first thing that they felt was a disruption between themselves. Did you notice that in the text? Before they ate from that tree, they were naked. And the Bible says they were not ashamed. But after sinning, they were ashamed. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed coverings for themselves so they could hide from each other. But even worse, they hid from God. They didn't just hide from each other. They didn't just feel tension between themselves. They knew there was tension between them and God. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. When they sinned, there were lots of consequences. There were lots of consequences from their sin. The man and the woman would forevermore live in tension with one another. They would not get along as they were designed to get along. The creation doesn't work as it did before. Even the ground itself is cursed. It grows thorns and thistles and not just beautiful fruit. One of the consequences of the fall we read about in Genesis chapter 3 is that childbirth will be painful. And some of you have experienced that in depth. One of the results of this, one of the consequences of sin, is that man's work will be difficult. It would not be easy to tend the garden anymore. It would be with sweat and toil that the earth would produce its fruit. There were lots of consequences from their sin, but the worst consequence, hear me clearly, the worst consequence is the brokenness of the relationship between Adam and Eve and God their creator. They didn't have fellowship with him anymore like they did before. They had sinned and broken their relationship with him. See, he is holy. He is righteous. He is pure. He is just. And he must punish sin. When sin came into the world, it created this distance, this separation between the holy God and the sinful man. And that separation continues to this day. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that text, right? You've memorized that text. And you know the text that follows in chapter 6, verse 23, that says the wages of sin is death. We have all sinned with Adam and Eve. We have all sinned. And with Adam and Eve, we have earned death for ourselves. And we, too, experience this great separation between us and God. Everything was broken. And everything went dark on that day. The question we have, after we consider the very bad corruption, is, is there any hope? Is there any hope that the sinful man could possibly be reunited with the holy God? Is there any hope that those two could ever have a relationship with, with one another again? And the answer is yes. In fact, there's a very sure promise. Right in the middle, right in the middle of God's pronouncement of his righteous judgment for their sin, there's this glimmer of light. Look at it in Genesis 3, verse 15. 
In Genesis 3, verse 15, God is speaking to the snake, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Nearly every Bible scholar refers to this verse as the proto-evangelium, which is a long and technical word for first gospel. This, in chapter 3, verse 15, is the first gospel. In the midst of all of this bad news about sin and punishment, there is a glimmer of good news. It's remarkable to me that as soon as sin comes into the world and everything breaks, God promises that one day that will change. And it will change through the seed of the woman. This whole promise, and the point that I'm trying to make, is tied up in this business of the seed of the woman. Look. It says that promised seed will bruise or strike or crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent, the serpent will bruise or strike that seed on the heel. That's the basic truth of the gospel that is going to be fleshed out for the rest of the Bible. And I'm telling you, it's a whisper at this point, right? Every story whispers his name. But even here from the beginning, God says to the snake, You're going to bruise the heel of her seed, and her seed is going to crush your head. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is the promised seed of the woman. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman who will crush the head of that snake. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, is a great text to preach at Christmas time. It says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is how he fixes it. This is how he fixes the brokenness between holy God and sinful man. It's through the seed of the woman the one born of a woman under the law to reconcile sinners to the Father. That's why Luke, in his gospel, traces the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Starting in chapter 3, verse 23, Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus, not to Abraham. He doesn't just go to Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. This shows us that Jesus is the promised seed of the woman. Matthew, when he talks about the genealogy of Jesus, traces him only back to Abraham. But even in, even in Matthew's tracing the genealogy of Jesus back to Abraham, we see the concept of the seed on display. The promised seed is on display even there. Paul brings our attention to it in Galatians chapter 3. Look at this. It says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. This idea of the promised seed is found all throughout the Old Testament. You can trace this concept all the way from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way to Jesus in the New Testament. The promised seed who would fix everything that was broken. Jesus is the promised seed. He's the one the world has been waiting on, and he has come. Let me remind you about the very end of what I read to the kids from the storybook Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones says, Well, in another story, it would all be over, and that would have been the end. 
but not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story in there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run away from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children longing for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against that snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day God himself would come. Jesus is the promised seed. And Jesus has crushed the head of the snake. Jesus has crushed the head of the snake. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He says, John says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Look at this last bit. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus has crushed the serpent's head. Oh, he was struck on the heel by that snake, most notably on the cross. In fact, it seems at the cross that the enemy thought that he had conquered the seed of the woman. On that day, after all, he was dead, right? The promised seed of the woman dead on a cross, and they made sure he was dead. They checked, like they put that spear into his side, and out came water and blood. He was really dead, and because he was dead, they placed him in a tomb. And I'm telling you, in that moment, the enemy, the snake, thought he had conquered the promised seed of the woman. But you know how that story goes, right? On the third day, he rose from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, conquering death, and he crushed the head of the serpent at his resurrection. He conquered Satan at his resurrection. By dying in our place and rising again, the Lord Jesus Christ made a way for us to be reconciled to God, for us to be saved from our sin, for us to be forgiven and cleansed and accepted. He has crushed the head of the snake. Exactly. This, this should get us going a little bit. He is the promised seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3. And he has already crushed the head of the snake by rising from the dead. But friends, he will crush the head of the snake as well. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20 verse 10, it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is yet to come. The full and final and permanent defeat of that snake is yet to come. The promised seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus, is coming back to do away with the snake once and for all forever. So we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we look back to the cross and the empty tomb and we say, the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, has crushed the head of the snake. And we look ahead to his sure return, and we say, he will fully and finally crush the head of the snake. And so there is hope for all of us. So what we've looked, what we've looked at today is, number one, 
the very good creation. I want you to know that we were designed to live in fellowship with God and obedience to God. That's the way we were created. You saw it in the garden before the fall in the very good creation. There was harmony between Adam and Eve. There was harmony between Adam and Eve and the rest of the creatures. And there was harmony between Adam and Eve and God. They walked together in perfect harmony. We were designed for that kind of relationship, particularly that kind of relationship with God. But there was a very bad corruption. We have all sinned. Let's not just put this on the original sin, the first sin of Adam and Eve, which we are counted in by our relationship with him. We are guilty even then. But let's be honest, we are guilty of sin every day. We have sinned, and we do sin, and sin separates us from God, and we deserve only his wrath forever and ever. There's a good creation, a good design, but there was a very bad corruption. But let's rejoice in the very sure promise that God himself has made a way for us to be saved. Right, right from the beginning, when he's doling out the consequences of that sin, he says, there's a way. I'm going to make a way. I will rescue you. I will send the promised seed of the woman to crush that snake. He's made a way for us to be saved, to live in relationship with him. So repent and believe. Right? We've talked about the holiness of God. We've talked about the sinfulness of man. And if we're honest, we're, we're sinners. We know we're sinners. We've talked about how we deserve only wrath and judgment. We've talked about how the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place. We've talked about how he was buried. We've talked about how he rose in victory over death and sin and hell and the devil. And he offers to us forgiveness of sins. He offers to us eternal life and salvation. He offers to us reconciliation to the holy God that we receive by believing in him, by trusting in him, not by working up something of our own, not by scoring a certain score on a test, but by trusting in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, by resting our whole weight upon him and what he has done for us. We receive the gift of salvation by trusting in Jesus and repenting of our sins. We don't go on living the same way we always lived. We repent we walk with him in holiness. Oh, friends, I am inviting you today to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. He is the only hope, and he's always been the hope. From the very beginning, from the day it broke, he has been the hope, and he is the only hope forevermore. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Believers, those of you who are repenting and believing in Jesus, here's what you get to do. You get to celebrate the coming of Jesus as the arrival of our rescuer. When we think about Christmas time, we think about this baby that was born to us, we celebrate the arrival of our rescuer. The long-awaited one has come, and so there is hope for us. Let's rejoice in that. Like, let's stand where we are today, and let's look back to Bethlehem and say the rescuer has come. And we know that he wasn't just a baby in a manger, right? We know that he was God in the flesh, and we know that he lived a perfect life, and he died a substitutionary death, and he rose victoriously from the dead. We know all of this, right? And so at Christmas time, we celebrate that as we look back, and we rejoice in what God has done for us. Brothers and sisters, let's celebrate the coming of Jesus as the arrival of our rescuer this Christmas season. And secondly, let's anticipate the return of Jesus as the arrival of the eternal conquering king. Let's know 
that the long-awaited one is coming back. He's coming back, and it will not be like this. It will not be in humility. It will not be in obscurity. He will not be a little helpless baby. He will be a conquering king on a white horse with a sword that comes out of his mouth with which he slays the nations. He will fully and finally crush the head of that snake and along with him all those, all those who are opposed to him. All those who are the Lord Jesus' enemies will be destroyed on that day. And all those who are with him will conquer with him and reign with him for all eternity. So this year, this year as we work through Advent, let's celebrate the coming of Jesus as the arrival of our rescuer and let's anticipate the return of Jesus as the arrival of the conquering king. And let's say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You see, every story, every story is whispering his name. Even in that little bit of business about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the snake, that's Jesus right there. And you can trace that all the way through the Gospels, all the way through Revelation, all the way into eternity. Oh, friends, let's celebrate. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for how your word whispers the name of Jesus on every page. And as we reflect on what we have seen in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 today, teach us about your good creation, how we were designed to live in fellowship with you and in obedience to you. Teach us about that very bad corruption and how we have sinned and how sin separates us from you and how we deserve only your wrath. And Lord, teach us about that very sure promise that you have made a way for us to be saved, a way for us to live in right relationship with you through that seed of the woman, through the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place and rose again. Pray for men and women and boys and girls who are on the outside. Oh, Father, give them faith to trust in Jesus. Give them repentance to turn away from their sins and save them by your grace for your glory, we pray. On this day, change everything for them. For those of us who are your people, help us to celebrate the coming of Jesus as the arrival of our rescuer, as the dawning of a new day. Help us to celebrate the birth of Christ, who is our Savior, who saves us from our sins. And help us to anticipate the return of Jesus as the arrival of the eternal conquering King. Teach us that it won't always be like this. That that snake will be fully and finally crushed and thrown into the lake of fire. And we will dwell as your people, saved by grace, we will dwell with you as it was in the beginning, as it was in the garden. We will walk with you in the cool of the day. You will be our God and we will be your people. So come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your name.